I want to call your attention now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. <clears throat> and we will look at verses 41 through 44 by God's grace in this message, John 6, beginning at verse 41. It says, The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not, among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. May God bless the reading of this portion of his word to our hearts. We are still in the synagogue at Capernaum, where the atmosphere is highly charged as many Jews who were casual followers of Jesus are becoming increasingly disillusioned with him. And there is something of a turning point in our Lord's public ministry here in this chapter we might sort of summarize it by saying this. On the first day of two that are mentioned here in John chapter 6, the opinion of the multitude was Jesus is the greatest. And by the end of the second day of John chapter 6, the opinion of the multitude had shifted to where they said He's not so great after all. We know that the scene here in this part of the chapter is in Capernaum, and uh, we have been saying that it's in the synagogue, and I think most writers take that view, but you might be interested to know that uh, J.C. Ryle, for one, thinks that Perhaps there's a change of scene somewhere in here, and if so, it's probably in uh, verse 41, where perhaps the multitude moves from somewhere on Main Street, we might say, uh, into the synagogue with the, the Jews murmuring at him. But there are two things that we want to see mainly in these verses today. Simply this, first of all, the the Jews as they murmur. And then secondly, the Lord Jesus as he issues a warning to them. And obviously the words of the Lord that begin in verse 43 do not end until the end of verse 51. So we're just going to get started uh, in what Jesus has to say here at this point in the in the conversation. 
But there's much here to consider. We see, first of all, then, the Jews as they murmur. The Jews then murmured at him, or they murmured about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Notice the Lord describes their murmuring in verse 43 as among themselves. They seem to have these murmurings among themselves in the sense of not openly before him. They were muttering these, these things kind of under their breath and away from him. They evidently did not want him to hear. <clears throat> the word murmur here means uh, to mutter or to grumble. <clears throat> A.T. Robertson describes this scene as a rising tide of protest against Jesus. And before they're ready to say so much to him, they are saying these things among themselves and kind of strengthening each other in their opposition to him. And remember that this increasing antagonism against Jesus is coming from the same ones who less than 24 hours earlier had been clamoring to put a crown on his head and make him their king. If nothing else, it shows us how fragile political friendships are. And that's as relevant today as it ever was. Political ties and political followers are given to change, uh, to say the least. But what was the difficulty that they had with Jesus? It comes down to this. It was his claim to have come down from heaven as the bread of life, or the bread that gives life, his coming down from heaven as the source of life, in other words, that he was some special gift from God to man. This is what they could not accept. They they could not believe. It's mentioned Uh, both in verse 41 and in verse 42, the Jews then murmured at him, and here's why, because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? They seem to have sort of collated his words from three previous Verses here, you recall in verse 33, he said, The bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And in verse 35, I am the bread of life. And in verse 38, I came down from heaven and so on. And they put that all together. I am the bread which came down from heaven. I came down from Heaven. Well, at least they understood something of his claim. 
though they didn't believe it, they understood something of what he was saying. And sadly, they, what they did understand, they rejected. There was much that they did not understand. But they come to this point. They say, you know, he really was the greatest yesterday. But he's gone over the top now. He's claiming to be sent from heaven. He's claiming a heavenly origin. He's not that great. Who does he think he is? Why, if he were sent by God from heaven, he wouldn't look like the man that he is. He would resemble an angelic being, no doubt. In the Old Testament, when messengers came from God in heaven, they had an angelic form. And I I think this is probably what these Jews were expecting to see if if what Jesus said to them was was believable to them. But because his lowly human nature was all that they could see and all that they observed. They rejected this idea that he came down from heaven. Now, the error in their thinking here is that they thought he was saying that his human nature had come down from heaven. That's not what he was saying. It was, of course, his divine nature that had come down from heaven. His human nature was begotten on this earth by a miraculous conception wrought by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But his human nature had no pre-existence in heaven. His human nature had its origin on this earth. In other words, their, their confusion and their difficulty came down to the fact that they had no concept of the dual nature of this person. They had no concept that there's a divine nature and a human nature together in this ordinary-looking person who stood before them. And this was a difficulty for many. His humble birth, his humble life, which was necessary for man's redemption, came to be used against him by sinful men. It's a striking thing. It's it's a tragic thing. He, He... took a human body and soul to redeem humanity. And yet that very humiliation on his part as a man became a stumbling block to those who needed his redemption. Just a a little later in the Gospel of John, in chapter 7, here in Jerusalem on a later occasion, what did they say? The people said, We know this man, uh, chapter 7, verse 27. We know this man whence he is. 
We know where he's from. He's from Nazareth. But when Christ cometh, when the Messiah comes, no man knoweth whence he is. They had some idea, erroneous idea, that the Messiah would just sort of appear out of nowhere. And some of the old Jewish writers uh, talk about that. I think John Gill makes reference to some of them. And it, it was his, his humanity that was a stumbling block to the Jewish people. How blind they were that, that this, this humanity was necessary for the redemption of sinners. Well, it was that way with many people in Jesus' day, and it's that way with many people today. <clears throat> we hear people say, I can believe in God, but I really have a problem with Jesus Christ. This, this idea that God became a man or appeared as a man on this earth, and that, that's just a little too much to, to accept. But oh yes, I'm spiritual, I believe in God. And some of those people find a religious refuge in Judaism, which, like the Judaism of the first century, rejects Jesus, but claims to believe in God. Now notice again from verse 42 what they thought that they were certain of. They thought they knew for sure who his father and mother were. We know Joseph, his father. We know Mary, his mother, from Nazareth. How the people in Capernaum knew this family from Nazareth, we don't know. Some speculate that perhaps they relocated and, and lived in, in Capernaum or something. And, and we're not even sure that Joseph was actually alive at this time. There's some uh, difference of opinion on that. But whatever the case, these people were sure, or they, they thought that they were sure, of the parentage of Jesus, where he came from. He didn't come down from heaven. He just came from Joseph and Mary here in Galilee. He's a Galilean like us. And again, we see this attitude repeatedly in, in Christ's public ministry. When he was in Nazareth at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and he goes to the synagogue and he reads out of the, the, the scroll of Isaiah. And the people were amazed. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? It, he, he's, he's just one of us. This is, this is the one that we saw grow up down the street. He comes back to Nazareth later in Matthew chapter 13. And again, the same response is not this the carpenter's son? 
Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? We know, we know his family. We know them all. Whence then hath this man all these things? Where did he get all of this understanding and, and speak with such authority as he does? And it says they were offended in him or offended at him. <clears throat> Oftentimes, Jesus met with this response. We know who he is. He didn't come down from heaven. We know all about his origin and his family and his upbringing. And because they thought they knew all of this, they rejected his clear claim to have come down from heaven. And there's a very important application for us to make here about this. There is a danger of a, a false familiarity with the truth, a false familiarity assuming that you know things that you don't know. Or that you know more than you know. And I tell you, this is a danger for all of us. May God deliver us from ourselves and deliver us from our own self-deception. Jesus said in one place that on the judgment day, some would come to him. And they would say, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth and so on. Do you see the point here? These people that, that, that Jesus is describing here thought they knew him. Why, you've taught in our streets. We've had meals together. We know you. And he says, no, I don't know you. You think you know me, but I don't know you. And he acts as a stranger to them on that awful judgment day. Oh, what a rude awakening that will be for those who have presumed and had what we can only describe as a false familiarity with Jesus Christ. Let us make sure that we truly know him. And that he knows us, that, that we are his sheep, and that he claims us. Oh, that the question of John 6:42 had been a sincere question. Oh, that this multitude here on this day in Capernaum had sincerely asked, 
Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? They, they were not humbly and sincerely seeking the truth. Their spirit was all wrong here. Their, their mind was already made up. And these are murmurings that they have among themselves. Beloved, let us learn not to be a murmurer. neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured referring to the ancestors of some of these very ones here in John chapter 6 and they were destroyed by the destroyer do not let sweet truth have a souring effect upon you that's what happened here instead of rejecting his words Seek an enlargement of mind to comprehend and rightly understand his claims. Well, we hasten on here to the warning that Jesus gives in verses 43 and following. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. He knew their mutterings, which evidently they thought he could not hear. He does show his divine nature here then as he knows their thoughts and knows their words which they think they have kept from him. We ought to learn to keep careful watch over our innermost thoughts because the Lord of glory knows them and sees them. He reads our minds. Oh, may he give us a pure mind and a pure heart. Well, we come to verse 44 here. And this is undoubtedly one of the most profound statements that the Lord Jesus ever made on this earth. J.C. Ryle wrote, There are probably very few parts of the Bible which contain so many deep things as this chapter, and I would only add, even as this verse. Listen to what he says. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let's consider just briefly what Jesus says here and then even more briefly consider why he said it and why he brings up this subject at this point in in the exchange. That's, That's a very important thing to understand in and of itself. But I would just point out from this verse three things that Jesus teaches First of all, he teaches man's inability to come to Christ. No man can come to me. And by coming, he means believing. We've seen that again and again uh, in, in this study and other studies as well. Coming to him means to embrace him as Lord and Savior. To come to rest upon him and believe on him as the Savior. And he says no man can. 
No man can believe on me. He speaks here of an inability. This inability was lost in Adam when he fell into sin and came under God's curse. And all of us in Adam and with Adam. In Adam, we lost our ability to do anything good in the sight of God, any absolute good. The only good we do is relatively good in the eyes of our fellow man. The truth is we're not able to take the first step toward God. Our steps are all away from him. We cannot come to him. And this is not the only place in Holy Scripture where this doctrine is taught. Jesus had already said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot perceive it. He he cannot understand it. He cannot grasp it. John the Baptist had said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. We see this doctrine in the Old Testament in a passage like Jeremiah 13.23 that says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? And of course the answer is no. We read a few moments ago from Romans chapter 8 that says the carnal mind is enmity against God. Our whole position, our whole frame of thought is anti-God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. There's the inability. It cannot be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot Please God. We are described in Ephesians chapter 2 as dead in our sins. Dead toward God. We have no attraction toward Him. Paul says to the Corinthians, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Because they're spiritually discerned. And this is simply what our Lord Jesus says here to the multitude on this day. No man can come to me. Nothing irritates and aggravates us as natural man. More than to be told of our inability. That there is something that we cannot do. Our attitude is, no one tells me what I can and cannot do. I'm not going to surrender my independence and my autonomy to anyone, including God. I know I'm not perfect, but I could improve any time I want. And you say, well, then why don't you improve yourself? 
well, I just don't want to right now. Well, even taking that on its face value, each person is self-condemned, are they not? Because if we could do better, we ought to do better. But the truth is, there is an inability about us. Left to ourselves, none of us can come to Christ. Left to ourselves, none of us will ever come to Christ. We cannot in our own strength and our own determination. Now, lest we be confused here, we should understand that Jesus is not talking about a person wanting to come and being kept away. He's not talking about a person wanting to come and being hindered. He's talking about a person not wanting to come. And that revulsion against coming to Christ is so strong that it renders him unable. His hindrance is his own rebellious, sinful heart. And that's true of every one of us, my friend, in our natural sinful state. And I think it is helpful to distinguish, as most writers do, between a a physical inability and a moral inability. Whatever terms you want to use to describe it, you have to see a difference between, for example, Joseph's brothers back in Genesis chapter 37, who it says they hated Joseph, And could not speak peaceably to him. Oh, they could speak to him. They just couldn't speak peaceably to him. It wasn't that they didn't have a mouth and didn't have a a, a tongue and lips and breath to speak. It's that because they hated him, they could not find it in their hearts to speak peaceably to him. It was an inward inability or a moral inability because of their hardness of heart against him. On the other hand, there is sometimes physical inability. And here's, here's the, a very interesting contrast there. In Luke chapter 1, you have Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, when in old age... It is revealed to him there in the temple that he's that he and his wife are going to to have a child, John the Baptist. And it says, when he came out of the temple, he could not speak unto the people. Why could he not speak? It's because due to his doubt in his heart that this would really come to pass, God says, I'm going to give you a sign that it will come to pass. I'm going to take away your ability to speak until John is born, until the the child is born. And so that's a physical inability. Zacharias no doubt wanted to speak, and maybe he tried to speak, and nothing came out. But those are two different kinds of inability. That's the point I'm making here. Zacharias wanted to speak but couldn't Joseph's brothers didn't want to speak kindly peaceably to Joseph 
And that's a different kind of inability. That's a lack of desire. It's what most writers call a moral inability. And that's what Jesus is describing here. No man can come to me. Naturally, we are so bent against him, we have no interest and no desire. And the grip of sin is so strong upon us that it is a real inability. The Lord says much the same back in chapter 5, and we looked at this some months ago in verse 44. How can ye believe? How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? What's he saying? He's saying your pride and your selfish pursuit of earthly honor renders you unable to believe. On me. Our inability as lost sinners in Adam stems from the state of our heart, the hardness of our hearts against God, against His truth. But I would I would say this also though Adam lost his ability to come to God. He did not lose his duty to come to God. He did not lose his accountability to God. And the same is true of us. We ought to come to God, and we should come to God. But because of our own sin, we're unable to come. And we are therefore in this horrible position in which God holds us responsible to come to him, and yet we're not able to come to him. And our inability to come to him is our own fault. So what hope is there for us? Well, that brings us to the second doctrine here. Except the Father which hath sent me draw him. No one can come unless God in heaven draws him, brings him. And so this doctrine is the doctrine of of being drawn to Christ by the heavenly Father. And to draw here means to pull, to pull with force. It's the term used of some of these disciples who were fishermen, and as they pulled a net behind their boat through the Sea of Galilee, and they're they're catching fish in that net. They're drawing the net, it says. It's used again when Peter drew out his sword there in the Garden of Gethsemane to defend Jesus. It's this pulling along. And what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, If anyone is saved, it's going to be because a power greater than themselves has come to be exerted upon them and to pull them along. If we are to be saved and come to Christ, it's because and only because a power greater than us 
has overcome us and drawn us along. Now, again, there's unfortunately confusion on this matter. People whose attitude is more like the Jews here say, well, I can just see then you're telling us that people come kicking and screaming and refusing to come to Christ and he forces them to come against their will. No, that's not what the doctrine is and that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not what Scripture says. God does this drawing in the most amazing way. He makes us willing. That's as simple as I can put it. He secures our willingness. He, by His power, implants a principle of grace in us, a principle of life, and enables us to come. He overcomes our resistance, our inward resistance, by making Christ and salvation so appealing to us that which was formerly repulsive to us is now appealing to us. And we come running and we come willingly. As the psalmist says, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Being made willing is the key. Christ is viewed in the soul as one so glorious and so necessary and so desirable that he becomes simply irresistible. And before we saw no beauty in him and we resisted him, but God gives us eyes to see him as he is. And yes, his grace cannot be resisted at that point. That's how he draws us. We don't come kicking and screaming. We come gladly. We we come rejoicing. We come running. He says in Jeremiah, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. That's how he draws us. He, He manifests his love and draws us powerfully. And we'll look at verse 45 more next time, but notice how what he follows up with here. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. There's that powerful agency of God at work in the soul, being taught by God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh to me. Well, again, just like the truth of Inability, the truth of being drawn by God to Christ is offensive to many today. To be told that apart from being drawn to Christ, there's no hope for your soul. Oh, that that wounds our pride, our sinful pride, doesn't it? People put up arguments and objections against it to the detriment of their own soul. People say, well, 
I mean, they, they, they try to diminish the drawing and they say, well, I have to go along with it. I have to agree with it. He can only draw me so far and then I have to agree to it. Listen, the truth is that God must secure your agreement and mine. It's true that we must agree, but the source of our agreement is all his doing and all his grace and his gracious dealing with us. And so these two doctrines that we've seen thus far, man's inability and our total dependence upon God to come to Christ, are refused and sometimes abused Just let me explain a moment what I mean. Some on the one hand say, if it's true that I'm unable and therefore utterly dependent upon God, then there's nothing to do but just wait. Just sit and wait for God to move. Others, on the other hand, who reject this say, no, I'm not unable, I'm able. And I'm not dependent, I'm independent. And then what do they say? Because I'm independent, I'm going to wait for a more convenient season, when it pleases me, when I'm ready, when when I feel it's right. And you see, though, these people come from opposite objections, They arrive at the same point, and that is just to wait. Whereas, our duty before God is to seek Him and to come to Him and to call upon Him, to repent of our sin, to believe on Christ. And while it is true that we will come on God's time or we will not come at all, He does hold us responsible to come now and so i can say this dear friend do not wait do not put yourself in a position where you're just waiting either for god's time or your own time but come to christ come to him now while he is near and while he may be found Now, we must hurry here. There's a third doctrine taught here in verse 44, and that's the doctrine of the resurrection. I will raise him up. Who? The one who is drawn and comes to Christ. I will raise him up at the last day. And This is the same wording we saw at the end of verse 39 and at the end of verse 40. It's shorthand for everlasting life, fullness of salvation, full and final salvation. That includes even the resurrection of the body at the last day. But let's consider this for just a moment here. Why did Christ bring up this subject? Why did he bring up these doctrines here at this point in the development of the conversation? How does this connect with what the people had just said? I believe it is in this way. 
these proud, independent hearts needed more than anything else to be humbled, to be broken before God. And what better way to humble them and to break them and to bring them to the end of themselves than to say in so many words, you're murmuring against me is a testimony against you. It reveals something of your own heart. It's not my teaching that's making you stumble. It's your own corrupt heart. It's your own darkened understanding that's making you stumble. Jesus says in so many words, if you're not believing in me, then that's an indication that you're not being drawn to me by the Father. And if you're not being drawn to me by the Father, you're simply left dead in your sin. And the more you turn against me, the more you provoke him in whose hand your soul hangs. Who is your only hope? I see then in, in Christ's words here true, a true shepherd's heart, a pastoral care for these unworthy souls. Christ is dealing firmly with them, but he's dealing in a way that is geared to help them by exposing to them their own hearts. I think that's the flow of thought and the connection here. He is, in just to put it simply, giving them a warning. And when God gives us a warning, he's doing us a favor. His ministers issue his warnings today out of a heart of concern and compassion for their hearers. Do you hear the warning? Do you feel your inability to come to Christ? Is it more than just a theological theory to you? Have you seen the depth of antagonism in your heart naturally against Christ? Perhaps you've tried to do what is right, but only in your own strength, in your own wisdom. And now you recognize that you simply cannot. And that you need a power greater than your own to bring you to obedience. My friend, admit your dependence upon God. <clears throat> admit your need of his power to be exerted upon you and within you to turn your heart and to bring you to faith in Christ. To overcome your rebellion and to overcome your inability. This is the grace that we need. Powerful grace. Not a little weak grace, but overcoming, overruling grace. And that's what the word sovereign means. It means overruling. Conquering grace.
And I want to say this lovingly, but I must say it clearly and firmly. If you're lost today, understand that you are at God's mercy. He may do with you whatever He pleases. He may draw you to Himself or He may leave you to yourself and your sin and punishment. He may justly cast you into hell or He may graciously save you and bring you to His heaven. You are utterly at His mercy. Therefore, Ask Him for mercy. Seek His mercy. Call upon Him for mercy. Saving mercy. He's promised to be merciful to all who sincerely ask. Oh, what good news that is. The mercy is all in Christ as our mediator. I'll tell you this. Continuing in rebellion against him like these Jews in John chapter 6 did. Digging in your heels against him is the worst indication of your soul, of the, the state of your soul. It is in your best interest and mine to surrender the fight against God and to be gladly drawn to Christ by the power of God. If you have come to Christ, you can be sure that it is only because it was His good pleasure to draw you in. Think about that. That's something that Believers can learn from John 6, 44. If you have come to him, know that it's only because he drew you. And it was his good pleasure to, to pull you in. It is not because you were better than others or wiser than others or stronger than others or more worthy than others. It was only because of His grace. And therefore, let us glory in the Lord. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord.